So, the idea for us this morning, all right, we are walking through the life of Jesus, and we're going to persevere uh, and despite sound problems and techno problems and wasp problems and everything else, right? All right? Cole's still sweating. So, John chapter 18, we're walking through the life of Jesus. Um, where we've gotten to so far, folks, is we're getting ready for Easter. We're moving towards Easter, and we're starting to think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Uh, we just finished the farewell discourse. Farewell discourse is roughly John 12 through John 17. He invests intentionally in his disciples. He, and in fact says this, he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. It blows my mind. And I want to show you that uh, to, uh, today, uh, and I say tonight, because we're actually at Thursday night, getting into Friday morning early in the life of Jesus, this end of the Passion Week and the start of the Passion, if you will. As we get to this point in John chapter 18, I want to just point out just three quick things for you, if you don't mind. Would you read with me? John chapter 18, verse 1. It said, when Jesus had spoken these words, that implies from the text of John that it's the high priestly prayer and the words that he spoke to them during the farewell discourse. He went out with his disciples across the brook of Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, there's two ands there, I want you to notice that, went there with lanterns, here's another and, and torches, here's another and, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do, you, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of, who, of, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come to you today, we approach this text that uh, records for us your arrest. And Lord, we want to think about this concept of what you endured, what you suffered, and how you responded to the arrest. We thank you for this text and ask that you would speak by your spirit through your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we talk about the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels is a, uh, hopefully a simple term for us. And with synoptic, we mean to see together. And so the easiest way to look at synoptics, if you're reading through your Bible, you're going to find those four Gospels, remember? And as you find Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you're going to see that Matthew and Mark and Luke tell pretty much a parallel story of the life of Jesus. I mean, if you would actually lay them out side by side, 
you would read, and from verse to verse, it's going to tell a, a, basically the same story in the same order with a few varying details. Now, that doesn't mean that it contradicts itself. It means that Matthew was looking at one perspective, and he recorded things that were important to Matthew. And it looks that Mark, re- written from Peter's perspective, then Mark's going to record some different things, but the same story. And then Luke is going to record same story, but just a few little different details. Being a physician, he tend to pay attention to some medical things usually. That's why his chapters are so long. Then you got John. John is unique and not technically one of the synoptic gospels because John just has a different flair about him altogether. And maybe you picked that up. I know that really stands out specifically in John 18. There are some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that actually you'll see in this text we just read about the arrest of Jesus, John doesn't even touch on. For example, four things that I found that just kind of jumped out at me. One, John doesn't record actual the prayer, the actual prayer in Gethsemane, in the garden itself. He doesn't record like Matthew and Mark and Luke tend to where Jesus has the disciples kneel down and pray and then they fall asleep and then he takes Peter, James, and John into the inner garden and then they fall asleep and then he goes into the inner garden within the inner garden. John doesn't talk about any of that stuff. John also doesn't talk about Judas's kiss. He doesn't talk about Judas's kiss of betrayal, but John just simply says Judas was the one that betrayed him. He doesn't really get into detail as to how. Uh, third thing, uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, uh, John identifies Jesus's, oh, excuse me, I'm, uh, John does not talk about Jesus healing Malchus. He doesn't talk about him taking his ear and replacing his ear after Peter had cut it off. John doesn't even talk about that, doesn't even touch on that. And then the fourth thing, John does not talk about Jesus' stated ability. You'll find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In one of those Gospels specifically, Jesus will say that he has the ability to call 12 legions of angels should he choose to do that. John doesn't even touch that. John doesn't even touch those things. It seems like, not that those things are unimportant, but what John is doing, he has a very specific focus in what he records. And throughout the Gospel of John, he doesn't stick with the, you would say, the newspaper reporting style where he says this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But John is just talking about one central figure. Instead of the focus on the events, he's talking about the figure. He's talking about Jesus. And he wants you to see, and don't let your attention be distracted by who Malchus really is, even though we could research that. We're going to touch on that just briefly. Don't be distracted by Judas's inner struggle and how he got close to Jesus and kissed him. John wants you to see Jesus. So there's actually three things that I see that John emphasizes here in this text about Jesus. So this morning, let's look not at Judas and not at the other disciples, not at their sleeping, not at the Roman cohort. Let's look specifically just for a moment, if you will. Let's look at Jesus. Here's the first thing that I see about Jesus. If you join with me in verse 1, we'll read through the text again. When Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples had entered. Verse 2 tells us, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. And so I want you to just... Venture with me just for a second. Jesus is not going to a hideout. 
Can you embrace that with me? The, the idea that we often get in our culture is that Jesus was taken by force and that he was held down and pierced to that cross. No. In fact, the Scripture tells us, John, this is the second time that he's done it on Thursday night. First, in the farewell discourse, before Jesus gets up to wash the disciples' feet, John records he knew what Satan had put in Judas's heart. Jesus has knowledge about what's going on around him, not just in the past, not just in the moment, but Jesus is also aware of what's about to happen. Now, if you keep that in mind, I'm blown away by this concept that when he is taking his disciples, remember uh, we said in the farewell discourse, Judas gets up and he goes out and now he's in the act of gathering these soldiers so that he can actually betray Jesus. Jesus knows that's going on. Don't miss it. You and I, if we're reading the story for the first time, we'd say, I'm not sure if, if Jesus is going to be surprised by this or not. He's not surprised. He does not take his disciples to a dark, secret garden where maybe, possibly, Judas won't find him. No! He says, Judas, you know where we go. You know where we hang out when we come to Passover. This is not Jesus' first time at Passover. It's, in fact, his third time at Passover with the disciples. And he says, we're going to the same place that we always go. We're going to the same place that we always go. We have people like that, by the way, in our churches, and I think maybe it's possible some of you could do that. But, you know, other than Victory Sunday, when you hang around for lunch with us, after church on Sunday, you have certain places that you go. And if people want to know how to find you, they just go to those restaurants. Amen? Here's the idea. Jesus is not going to a hideout. He's going to a hangout. This is a place where he knows Judas is familiar with this place. If Judas wants to find him, which he does, Jesus is going to go ahead and get there and wait for Judas to come on. It's not a matter with Jesus of, I hope we could get away. He's not trying to get away. Do you see that? Watch with me. He goes on to say, this is verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. This is a hang out. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, we'll come back to that in just a second, and some officers and chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then see verse 4, here it is the second time, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he knows what's going on. The Creator, who Colossians tells us, Jesus was present in creation active in creation there as adam the first man is formed by god there as adam falls into a sleep and god removes the rib and jesus is present as eve is fashioned and as man and woman begin to represent all of humanity jesus is there the creator allows himself intentionally to become like the created. Not in the sin fashion, but in the form. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. God has orchestrated this plan. God designed this plan 
for his son to become a man. And now we're at this point as we're journeying with Jesus towards the cross where we're at a decision moment, if you will. Is Jesus, because he's lived some 30 years, 33 at this point, 33 years in the flesh, there's this idea that Jesus is faced with inner turmoil. Should I go to the cross or not go to the cross? I really don't know that I get on board with that fully, folks, because of this. Jesus is not going to a place where he's hiding. He's going to a place where he is awaiting God's plan to come to fruition. He's intentional. He's intentional. Have you ever wondered about that in your life? One of the greatest... I guess theological debates that we could get into is this. Does God actually know what he's doing? Does he actually know what's going on in my life? Does he actually know when so, somebody treats me this way that they were going to treat me this way? Or when circumstances don't work out the way that I thought they would, the way that we all thought they would? Does God actually know that? Does God ever have a moment in our lives where he's caught off guard, where he's surprised, where he's just wondering what's going to happen next? And the answer to that resoundingly is God is intentional about everything that's going on in your life. He is aware of it, and he is in control of it. And he is doing these things we see in the life of Jesus intentionally to show you something about himself. He is wanting us to see, not that Jesus is, you know, I want to be very careful because I know there's that whole, that whole idea of, well, Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. Can I tell you, Jesus is not running scared from the cross. Jesus is running headfirst towards it. And he's saying this is going to be the most excruciating way a human person could possibly die. And he's charging for it. He's going to it. He knows what's about to happen to him. He knows what that pain is going to be like. The creator is not surprised by that. He's walking intentionally to the place where he will be arrested. And he will then be tried unjustly, we'll see next week. And he will be crucified in a horrific way. He's running to it. Why? This is God's plan. This is God's will being unfolded for you and for me. And he says, Jesus, he says, here I am. Here I am. Now keep that in mind. I want you to also, this second thought. Pick back up with me, verse 3, and I want to focus on how Jesus responds here, right? Just back up to verse 3 for a second. So Jesus, uh, so, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, all right? The actual Greek word for band of soldiers is not a group of people, but it's a more specific term that John uses in the Greek, and it represents the Roman soldiers who would have been stationed very close by, all right? The Roman soldiers would have sent up to a thousand, history tells us, up to a thousand soldiers to Jerusalem during Passover. And they have those thousand soldiers waiting there because they don't want the people they've conquered, the Jews, to begin to become, if you will, too excited about their religious celebration. And they don't want there to be a revolt or any kind of rebellion or any kind of mob breakout. So there's a thousand soldiers that are stationed in Jerusalem. So that means this. When Judas goes and he is going to betray Jesus, the Jewish leaders want to be very careful 
about how they go about this. They don't want Rome to become angered by what the Jews do. So in some kind of negotiation that we're not really clear about at this point, the high priest has worked this out with the Roman leader to say, would you give us a large group of soldiers so that if there's any kind of revolt from Jesus and his disciples, then Rome can crush that. Pretty smart. So when we see this, and I want you to do the math with me, so the idea here is in verse 3, a band of soldiers refers to, some estimate, anywhere from 200 soldiers up to possibly the whole garrison of 1,000 soldiers. I'm going to do some greater than, less than things here in just a second. You ready? It also says in verse 3, there were some officers from the chief priest. So the Jewish chief priest had what we would call temple police. And so there's an undetermined amount of temple police that come along with all these up to 200, maybe even up to 1,000 Roman soldiers. And then so we've got to have somebody that's going to, you know, be proper, I guess you would say. Here come the Pharisees. We're not sure exactly how many there are. That could have been a large group as well. So best estimate, we're imagining that as Jesus is, Jesus is in Gethsemane, there's anywhere from 400 to 600 people that have gathered together to come and arrest him. It says there, you'll see at the end of verse 3, that they come with lanterns and things like that, but that last thing is interesting for me. They come with weapons. They come with weapons. So if you've got the picture in your mind, here's Jesus. He's got 11 disciples with him, right? I mean, you're talking about if you're going to just throw down, one of those guys, remember, is a tax collector, so you definitely want Matthew there with you, right? So there's 11 disciples there with Jesus. In the dark, sometime we would guess around maybe a little after midnight. You remember. If you look at the other Gospels, the synoptics, you'll remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicate these 11, all 11, even Peter, have been napping. Any y'all, how many of y'all know that there is a midnight? Anybody seen midnight? Recent midnight? A couple of y'all maybe? What happens, and I'll ask the ladies here, what happens when your husband's been asleep for a couple of hours and at midnight you try to stir him? He's ready to go, right? Here's Jesus surrounded by 11 men who have been sound asleep. All of a sudden in the distance, here comes 400 to 600 people with weapons. You're talking about overkill. So they fill this garden, we would imagine, and they kind of surround the place. They surround this small band of believers. And what we see, if we're actually letting the picture play out, we see these 11 men kind of waking up, being awoken to being surrounded. Panic, dread, fear, all that's going through. The Scripture indicates for us that Jesus knew they were coming. Jesus is prepared for them to come. And as if you really get into the Scripture, my understanding would be this. Jesus begins to stir the disciples, saying, Arise, they're here. They're here. 
Now, watch this with me. So in verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, we saw that, came forward. Came forward is not the expression of a weakling. Came forward is not the expression of someone who's uncertain, unsure about what's happening. Came forward is the expression of, here I am, identify me, band of 600 soldiers. You with me? And so Jesus says this, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth being tacked on there is meant to be an insult because the Judeans thought that those people from Nazareth were just nobodies. So there's no respect whatsoever in their response. They're, in fact, beginning to the insulting phase of Jesus where they're saying, hey, we're looking for this guy, some nobody. And we're here to arrest this nobody, and we're going to take him. We're going to do with him what we want to do. We're going to let you know, here we are. And then my favorite verse in the passage. Jesus answered them. Well, excuse me, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he. It's what we call an I am statement. It references Exodus 3 where God says to Moses, I am. That's what you need to tell Pharaoh. I am. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm God. In the Greek, he's saying, I am equivalent with God. Now, if most people were to say that, there's going to be immediate stoning and death according to Jewish law. Look how these guys respond. This crowd of 400 to 600 soldiers, they have weapons in their hand. The Scripture says they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, many different, and we've seen movies that kind of take our imagination away, church, but many people say that there was, when Jesus said this, there was like a rushing wind that blew the people back, right? But as I understand that, the original Greek would indicate this. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking with the authority of God. His word is, I'm God. And he says that this first time in such a way that the natural response of the created being is to fall down and worship. Not think, not debate, not argue, but to fall down on your face and worship. So what I find interesting there is this. Jesus says, he's outnumbered, he's surrounded, right? And he says, I'm God. And these men don't fall forward, but they fall away. It says they fell back. So the concept here that we would see, many people in our culture want to present to you a sissified, weak, afraid Jesus who is merely an average or maybe pretty good teacher and then he died for a good cause. I want to submit to you what the Scripture actually indicates for us. Here is God become man to dwell among us to save us of our sins. And he is wrapped up in God's plan. And as he is wrapped up in God's plan, they don't come to take him into custody. He's already been taken into custody because he's sold out to say, I came to save you. You need Jesus in this moment to fulfill what God has sent him to do. And he is not backing down. He's not weak need. No, he's standing up strong saying, here I am. I'm the one. I'm the only one who can save you of your sins. The only one. No one else can do it. Everybody else is running away from you in fear. Everybody else is letting you down and disappointing you. Everything else that you're pursuing is going to disappoint you. Here's Jesus. He clearly identifies himself. I'm God. 
You need God. At this time, he's the only one that can save you. And Jesus steps up. He says, I'm here to save you. I'm here to save you. So, well, well, isn't there, isn't there another option? Why would we need to pursue another option? God has become man, and at the appointed time, Galatians tells us, he steps up. And he says, you can't save yourself. Your career path can't save you. There's nothing that you do in your own works, your own strength, your own effort, even your own attitude that can save you. You need God to come and fix your sin problem. How does he respond? I'm he. I'm here. I'm not backing down. I'm not hiding out. I'm not running away. I'm not scared of these guys. They have the weapons. He has the power. He has the power. They don't come and take him by force. They come and take him because he surrendered it. Do you get that? Do you get that? We get so caught up in this idea of, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Can I say to you in love, you are. Oh, man, you are. And here's the beautiful picture for you, that Jesus Christ, God, came for you in your sin. And he came like a man. And he came courageously to fulfill God's purpose for your life. Now watch what happens. Verse 7 says, so we asked them again, whom do you say that I am? And they muster up perhaps a little bit of courage, I guess. Maybe not as strong as the first time, I would imagine. But they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. I mean, if you're looking for him, hey, there are many, many uh, different denominations, many different beliefs that would say this, that they actually, the disciples, allowed the soldiers to arrest a false prophet what i mean by that is this that that there's this belief that one of the disciples actually took on the identity of jesus and allowed himself to be arrested and then jesus pretended to be someone else so he could escape here's a problem with that jesus says it's me here i am standing in front of you we're not deceiving we're not lying we're not manipulating We're telling you, here's God come to die for you. Verse 8 says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. He's referring to his disciples. It goes on, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Can you imagine this? Surrounded by 400 to 600 men with soldiers in the dark, Jesus is concerned about the 11 guys who were just sleeping through prayer meetings. He says, I just, I want to make sure that in no way you idolize these 11 men. I love them. I don't want you to hurt them. I'm the Jesus. I'm the Savior. I'm the one who came to die for you. Verse 10, all right, and I've I've got to touch on this, all right. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who still got sleep in his eyes, he had a sword, and, you know, and again, this would tell us that probably more, this is, we would say, a dagger, maybe something up to, you know, two feet long, perhaps. Something that would easily fit on his side. This is not like a Braveheart kind of sword. Not that that would matter against 400 to 600 men. But Simon Peter, with his tax collector posse behind him, having a sword, he drew it, and he's swinging at the high priest servant's ear. And he cuts off the ear, right? 
You know what that is? Right? It's a it's just an idiot. It's just a hothead moron. I'm sorry. Hey guys, come on. We can take them. No, you can't. No, you can't. You say, could he count? Yeah, it shows in scripture. He counting fish, he could actually do that. But he's got passion, but no common sense. Think about him, head of the disciples. Head of the disciples. So Jesus said to Peter, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. And look at what he says. She's talking about knowing the full will of God. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What you see in Jesus, I hope this morning, church, is very simple. God's got an intentional plan to offer salvation to you. He did it his way. He did it using his methods. He did it using his power. He did it using his knowledge. And we enter into his presence and we say, I just don't feel like I deserve it. Can I tell you? Jesus came intentionally arrested to the idea of God's will. And he said, I'm fully involved. I want to be here. They don't take my life. Would you turn with me over to John? As we conclude, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And I want to show you something he said earlier in the book of John that I'm sure the disciples, maybe like us today, just let really roll right over his head. But here's what Jesus prepared the disciples with. John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. There's that knowledge again. He knows who truly follows him and who simply tries to dress up like a sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Hear this terminology. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's me, baby. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Oh, that's really me. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd, one person that can save us. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In case you're confused by that, verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus says this very clearly. His act of dying for us was not accidental. It was not forced. It was not deserved. He said, I'm going to die for you because this is what saves you. And on the third day, I'm going to give life back to my own death because I'm the only one that can do this. And this secures for you eternal life. It is through Jesus' intentional desire to save you that we are offered the opportunity to know him. Would you pray with me? Our fathers, we come to you today. Thank you that you saved us by your plan, in your way, by your will, in your strength, in your wisdom, 
God, there's no me in this. This is all you acting on my behalf. This is all you acting when I wasn't even in a thought in anyone's mind except for yours. You intentionally came and fulfilled your plan to save me from the mess that I was in. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to respond. This morning, we want to respond specifically, intentionally. And we want to say, thank you. This morning, as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, allowing himself to be taken, allowing himself to be crucified, volunteering himself, he stood in our place when we lacked the courage or even the ability, the opportunity to even save. There's no way we could have saved ourselves, so he stepped up and courageously offered this gift to us. How will you respond to that? How will you respond to God finding you in your sin, offering you a way out? What will you do with that offer? As our praise team leads us, we invite you to respond to God's gift of salvation. If we can help you, we're here at the front. We invite you to stand to your feet and worship with us. But Make sure that you've sealed the deal. You know that you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you worship with us?